Listeners, welcome back to the listening room. This was the first episode of 2018. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, hopefully, another awesome year of storytelling is ahead of us. Um, this episode features storytellers Yamina Kawan, Jill Friedman, Christopher Levi, Malia Moss, and Nick Randall. Um, this episode was a lot of fun. Had some new uh, new storytellers being able to share, which is always a pretty cool thing. Uh, so peep the peep the episode. Hope you guys enjoy it. And next episode, we got a special little announcement. Hope you guys stay tuned. Um, enjoy. Take care. Bye bye. And a surprise drop in from Ray Flint. Sneak out, all right, cool, cool, cool. Uh, my name is Joey Zimmerman. I'm the host of this fun little storytelling show. Uh, has anyone here been to the listening room before? Is there some raises? Modest hand raises. I've heard a story before. Yes, yes. That's good. Well, um, I'm a comedian here in town, and I started this show when I had a bunch of stories that uh, didn't match up with what I wanted my stand-up to be, so I started this storytelling show, and it's grown into a fun little thing where I have comedians, improvisers, writers of all sorts, musicians, photographers, any creative type, just uh, come up here and, and share a fun story. Uh, a lot of story shows have like a theme for show whatever. This is no theme, so actually I have no idea what you're going to get. <laughs> you're going to get, I don't know what people are going to say up here. You're probably going to hear some crazy shit. Um, with that being said, don't heckle any of my friends that I bring up to the stage. Um, so most of them are, all of them are very smart and quick-witted, so if you say something dumb, they'll swing some insult back at you. And then, cha-ching, this is recorded as a live podcast, so that insult will be heard against you on the digital ears forever ingrained in stone. So don't heckle any of my friends. Uh, y'all be chill, and we'll share some chill stories, and it'll be a fun time. How's that sound, huh? Dope. Good, 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 good. Um, well, I'm Joey Zerman. I usually kick it off with the first story. You guys ready to do this? Go straight through the heart of the sun, huh? All right. Good. Let's see. The story involves me going to a gas station. This is a gas station back in, back in Lincoln, Nebraska, where I'm from. A, uh, I, was going, I was going to meet up with some friends to try LSD for the first time. That's where I was. And before I went to the house, I was like, I think I, I think I need to stop at this gas station for some sunflower seeds because I love, I love sunflower seeds. So I, I pull up uh, into the gas station. There's a, a lady sitting out smoking up front, a, a worker. And from just sitting in my car, like looking into, into uh, the gas station, there looks some hubbubaloo is going on inside of there. There's there's these guys just like running around like picking up loaves of bread and like throwing them across the way. People look they're like having a party inside this Casey's gas station. 
And I was like, should I really go in there? Should I, should I do it? This looks, nah, it's all right. I'll go do it. I'll go do it. So I go, I go into the gas station, and opening the door, it's like I went into like Cheers, the bar. I came in, everyone looks at me, and they go, hey! And I was like, ah, this is, I don't know how I was going to take part in this experience. Um, and they keep running around, and the cashier, the cashier, she, another uh, taller woman, uh, she appears friendly with all of them. She's like saying some of their names, so she like kind of knows these guys are kind of like act, acting out. Um, and I'm taking my time trying to find these, these sweet sunflower seeds. And I finally, I finally do, I find them. And uh, one of the guys uh, comes up to me and he's like, damn, man, you got some nice shoes. And I was wearing some red Pumas at the time. Uh, fair shoe, to be honest, fair shoe. Um, and I was like, thanks, man, thanks. Uh, and they just kept complimenting my shoes for a while in this like loop of a conversation. I just grabbed my sunflower seeds. I'm like, thank you. I'm gonna go and say, hey man, before you go, do you want do you want some weed? And I was like, well, sometimes, yeah. Sometimes, <laughs> any other uh, time, perhaps. Uh, but in this gas station, I was like, uh, no, that's all right. And he keeps pestering me as I'm like walking up to the cash register, and he's like. You, you, you got to get this weed, man. This weed is what you need. And I was like, nope, I've, 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 I'm, I'm good. I don't need it. And he goes, look, man, I got it right here. And he's wearing, like, stretchy athletic basketball shorts. And he, grabbing shorts and underwear, opens up all of it. <laughs> and next to his genitalia is, of course, a big bag of green weed, a big bag of weed. But I saw the dick first, to be honest. <laughs> that was the first thing I saw. And I was like, oh, expecting, you know, maybe everyone else in the store to react such that way, except everyone laughed and was like, oh, <laughs> it's him. It's like, that's what he does. That's like his, I was like, what? And the, cat, the lady who worked there was just laughing and like shaking her head. I was like, am I like the only one who's like, upset at what just happened I just got flashed um, so I was like no man that's thank you I'm, I'm good I don't I don't need any of that um, and he shuts his pants and he gets kind of mad he's like man I don't I don't believe I don't believe this you gotta you want this weed and I'm like I'm good I got the receipt from the lady uh, and I'm walking out the door and he starts following me and his friends like Hey man, what, what you doing? And he goes, I'm gonna see this deal through. And I was like, No, you ain't, motherfucker. Like, what's what's going on? So I I go out of the gas station, and uh, he's like following me pretty close, and his friends start like tailing out and uh, following, and I like get the keys to my car, and I like kind of. I like, imagine he's, he's like pretending he's like not there. I'm like just gonna go to my car and this whole thing's gonna go away. <laughs> and I like go to my car, I'm like around my side and I hit like the unlock on my side and he like reaches for the door handle on the passenger side and then I lock it again really quick. I'm like, hey man, what the fuck are you think you're doing? And he's like, you're, you're gonna buy this weed for me whether you, you like it or not. And then the rest of his homies like start just like leaning on my car and like sitting on it, acting like I'm like, trapped and I was like and he's, he's, he starts berating me about why I need it and I'm trying to think what to do like what should I do like what's what course of action am I going to take 
Um, the then the lady who was smoking outside when I when I came in attacks one of the men, like jumps on his back and wrestles him down to the ground. And a couple other guys get off and go to them, and then the taller, the bigger lady who was working inside comes out and starts like fighting them, and then they all just start screaming and like fighting together. And in that moment, I'm like, I'm getting the fuck out of here right now. <laughs> so I get in my car and I like peel away, and I was like, holy shit, this is like such a. I like call, uh, I call the cops. I think for the first time on like an interaction. <laughs> I, don't know, I was like, this was crazy. I think I don't want these women to get beat up by these men. So I called the cops. And I was like, I just got aggressively offered weed. <laughs> this man flashed me his genitals. And these two women might be getting beat up by a bunch of these guys. Um, it's at this Casey's gas station on like 16th. No, I, I just, I was, I'm like, it was at a gas station on 16th and E. And I didn't say the name. He was like, oh, you mean the Casey's? I was like, yes, at, at, at that Casey's. And he's like, over the phone, just like a... <sighs> I'll be right there. And it hangs up. Like, this has happened. This has happened all before. And then I got to my friend's house, and I did LSD for the first time, and we watched Tron, and it was a good time. And that's the end of my story. Thank you guys so much. I'll be here throughout the night. You guys ready for your next storyteller, huh? Hell yeah, hell yeah. You can see her every single Wednesday at 8 o'clock at the New Movement with her Improv Troop Garage. Everyone, please give a warm welcome to Malia Moss. Hey, everybody. How's everybody doing? Um, so I feel like I've got to address the obvious up top. Um, I tried a new conditioner today. <laughs> Looks very good. Uh, no, I'm currently walking with a cane, which I'm going to put over here. Um, this happened on Monday. I am a pretty injury-prone person. Uh, I, in the last two years, I've scratched a cornea, I've gotten a broken rib, I've gotten a broken wrist. There's, there's a lot that's happened, and listen, I live a life, okay? Like, sometimes life happens and you get hurt. At least that happens to me. But whenever I'm injured, obviously physically injured, one thing happens with absolute certainty. Someone, everyone asks me what happened, how it happened. And guys, it's always boring. It's always boring. Uh, a couple of you wonderful people offered me a seat. Good job. But you didn't say, hey, what happened to you? Tell me in depth what happened. Because what happened here was I stepped weird. And now I've got, a, I've got a sprained foot now. So this is the next two weeks of my life. But that is almost 99 out of 100 times that's what the story's going to be. Like, ah, oh, I just stepped weird, and then people pry, like, oh, tell me what happens. Like, well, I was trying to unlock my new phone with my face, and I wasn't paying attention, and then I stepped weird. Are our lives any more enriched than they were before? It's never interesting, and when it's that one time out of a hundred that does happen to be an interesting story, it might not be something that person wants talk about. 
like, for example, if you are a five-year-old covered in bandages and or scars, and you have a lot of people asking you what happened. Now, other kids, they're fine. They usually have a little curiosity, but then they just want to play. They fuck off about the details. But adults, your babysitters, your teachers, you've got a severely injured or someone with a disfigurement that they just have to pry. They just have to know. Well, but what happened? But what happened? And then you're forced to remember what happens. And maybe you're too shy as a five-year-old to tell people to fuck off, which you should. And then once you tell them the details, you remember when your mom was eight months pregnant and you asked if you could go play with your friends across the street. And because your mom is tired and her feet hurt, she says, sure, go ahead. You're a very mature and responsible five-year-old. Go play with Johnny and Arthur. Just tell their mom that you're there. And you remember going across the street and seeing Johnny and Arthur already outside, so you don't really think that it's necessary to tell your mom you're there. And you go to the backyard that's just a big open field with some shrubbery around the edges, and you start playing like little five, six, and seven-year-olds would, screaming, yelling, chasing each other. And then you remember looking up through the trees and the shrubs and seeing a pair of dogs staring intently at you, not looking friendly, because their owners are the skeezy neighbors whose yard backs up to the yard that you're playing in. And then you remember the panic that you felt when the dog started sprinting at you. And then you remember the fear that you felt when you saw your two friends who are older, taller boys run past you and you feel claws on your back. And then you remember the feeling of teeth in the back of your head and on your shoulders and on your legs because you've instinctually wrapped into a little ball like this and you're protecting your neck. And these dogs have been trained to protect their property and they want to kill you. And then you remember the feeling of teeth grabbing at any part that they can get a hold of and then violently shaking to try to get you to break your ball. And then you remember being dragged hundreds of feet as they try to get you to loosen up and being dragged into a ditch that was newly filled with water because it had rained a couple of days before. And then you remember not being able to breathe. And then you have to choose between being viciously bitten in the front of your chest and almost certainly dying or drowning. And then you remember being dragged out of there and dragged to the street and one of your neighbors seeing what happened and running over to try and beat them away with a rake, but the dogs don't want to let you go because they're on a mission. And then you remember the feeling of being picked up and taken back to your house where your mom 
is exiting as fast as she can because Johnny and Arthur have been trying to tell her for the last two minutes what's going on. She can't tell if this is a horrible joke or if this is real. And seeing your little five-year-old limp body covered in mud and blood. And then you remember being in the front seat of the car with one of your dad's t-shirts resting against the back of your head because it's so raw and bloody that your mom needs something soft for your head to rest on. And you remember asking if you can take a nap because you are so tired. And you remember your mom yelling at you not to go to sleep, that it's the most important thing that you don't go to sleep. And then you feel shame because your mom never yells at you and you think that you've done something wrong. And then you remember the look on the receptionist's face as you're in there and the shock and then you remember the look on the doctor's face when he just looks annoyed because obviously this girl just fell in the mud and her mom's overreacting. And then you remember that look change when all the mud gets wiped away and it's just blood streaming from everywhere. And then you remember being in the back of someone's car because the, the doctor said that you need to go to the hospital right away and one of the nurses is driving you and your mother there. And you ask again if you can take a nap because you're so tired. And then the nurse says that that's okay. And then you don't remember anything after that. I had over 150 stitches all along the back of my head and my legs and my shoulders. I had to get two surgeries plastic surgery to repair my ear because in the fight to get me to pull apart, one of the dogs ripped out part of my ear. And every time I tell this story, luckily the scars aren't nearly as visible now, but when I was six or seven, it came up. And every time I tell this story, I feel the same panic in my guts that a wild animal is trying to kill me. So maybe it's better to just leave those interesting stories be. Thank you. What a beautiful share, everyone. Please keep it going. Keep it going for Malia Moss. Thank you, thank you. Are you guys ready for your next performer of the evening? All right, all right. You can see her every single Monday night at the, Imp uh, at the Improv Theater, The New Movement, uh, hosting and doing the show Fuck This Week. Uh, everyone, please give a warm welcome to Yamina Kuan. Hey, everybody. Uh, thanks for cramming into this room to listen to us talk about our lives. Um, can you guys hear me in the back in the doorway? All right, cool. Sweet, because I couldn't when I was back there. Um, so I wanted to tell you guys uh, about my little brother. Um, as you guys probably know, family is really hard. It's hard to deal with most of the time. Uh, it's a bunch of people, and they're different generations, and you grew up in completely different worlds, but you feel like very obligated to each other because you're related. Um, and me and my little brother couldn't be more different. Um, I was like, you know, pretty good at school. I always got good grades without trying very hard and like was very involved. And I would hang out with my mom's best friend's daughters just because she told me to and I was very agreeable. 
Um, but my little brother, like the minute he was born, he was just a problem, a problem child all the way. He likes to scream at the top of his lungs whenever he has a free chance. If it's super quiet in a room, he'll find a reason to be really loud. Um, he grew up to like really love skateboarding and BMX biking, just like the, all the most aggressive ways of having fun. Uh, <laughs> you see him now, and he'll stand right next to me. We look alike in the face, but he's covered in tattoos. Like he has sleeves, and he has this weird like devil with a mallet on his chest, and like dice on one arm, and then like a pot leaf on the other one. It's just like not the best choices. I don't know, but. He loves it and he stands by it. Like he is definitely his own person. He's like he's gonna do whatever he wants to do. It doesn't matter if anybody tries to give him advice. In fact, he's like more likely to not listen to you if you try to give him advice. And I was that kind of older sister. I was always like telling him, you know, be careful, don't do that, don't jump on that, don't light that on fire. Um, like, be, like don't go into the street with fireworks, which is something he did a lot. Um, but yeah, he was just like very reckless. And I think because life seemed a lot easier for me because I just had a proclivity to be like quiet and reserved and he had the opposite, I think he really resented me. And I think because he resented me so much that we didn't get along. And um, we, neither of us wanted to show that we were kind of sad that we didn't get along. Because I think on the outside we showed that like, we were just you know always biting heads, but on the inside I think we really wanted to be accepted by each other because we admire each other for different reasons. I mean, I... I really think that he's super brave because he gets to just, you know, be free all the time and he's not really worried about what society thinks about him. And, you know, even though I, like, do comedy and um, work a shitty job, I do still care uh, what other people think. Um, but so, yeah, we fought a lot. When he was a little kid, he used to, he used to take those Hot Wheel tracks. Um, they're, like, these plastic things that you could stick to, like, to connect to each other and make like little roller coasters and then put the Hot Wheels cars through and they just zoom. He used to run around as a little kid with one of those tracks and his arm just like whipping things. And I was his favorite thing to whip. And, and, and I'm like six years older than him and I couldn't stand up to him. He was scary. He was little and fierce. Um, but uh, so one day um, when he was about 10 and I was a teenager um, discovering uh, MSN chat um, <laughs> my mom uh, had to go on an emergency meeting. She worked for the school district and um, uh, worked in social work. So sometimes she would have to go and like talk to the family she worked with. So she was like, Amina, I'm going to leave you guys for just a little while. I should be back in like, an hour and a half or so. Um, just, you know, answer the phone. Don't answer the door, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I was barely listening because I was telling some 35-year-old in Wisconsin that I was 25. Um, <laughs> And my little brother had a bunch of friends over, and I didn't even know that, but like he used to just have kids from the neighborhood over all the time. We didn't even know their names a lot of the time. Uh, but so my brother was probably playing in the backyard with our dog or something with one of his friends, uh, Bilo. Bilo was one of his best friends. He kind of looked like a little rodent. He had like these buck teeth, and he didn't really speak a lot, but he did this like, ooh, laugh. <laughs> I remember that pretty, pretty clearly for some reason. But so Bilo was there, so we weren't alone. Uh, my mom left, and I just stayed in my room chatting with Herbert from Wisconsin. Um, you know, also like switching between that and AIM and talking to my friends with all their cool screen names. Uh, and my brother was playing in the backyard, and I didn't even think anything about it. But um, after like 10 minutes, maybe, of my mom being gone, I heard kind of a boom sound. 
And it sounded like something had exploded in the garage because the like, this wall shook a little bit. And I heard people going, oh no, dude, oh no, dude, dude. And I knew something was wrong. So I like got out of my room, unlocked my door because I think I was locked in my, my bedroom while this was happening. And I went out there and my brother was just lying crouched on like the in the backyard and my dog was like barking like crazy and Bilo was crying. <laughs> he was like, Oh no, I didn't do it, I didn't do nothing, I didn't do nothing. I was like, Bilo, go home, just go home. Uh, my brother had started a fire in our backyard, like a bonfire. It was huge. And I don't even know how. Like, we didn't. Nobody smokes in our house. I don't think we have matches or lighters anywhere. But he had found lighter fluid. He had found matches and set this huge fire in our backyard. There were also a bunch of paint cans lying around. And it turns out that he had just kicked one into it, and it exploded. And most of it got my brother in the face. He took his hands off of his face, and I'll like, never, never forget it. It was like seeing Quasimodo in the Disney cartoon, and he just he had all these welts, and one of his eyes was like sealed shut from how swollen it was, and some of his skin was peeling on his neck, and I was just standing there in shock, and I had never learned what to do if you had really bad burns. And so I was like, I don't know, uh, let's go inside, let's go to the bathroom, uh, take your, get in the shower, just get in the shower. And we just turned the water on cold, as cold as it could, and he goes, Mimi, Mimi, he called me Mimi. He was like, Mimi, it hurts, it hurts so bad. I don't know, I'm on fire. And I was like, don't cry if you cry, I'm gonna start crying. Just take a shower, just take a shower. So he was just standing there, like fully clothed in the shower with cold water just raining on his face. And my mom got home probably about 20 minutes later and he was just in the living room and he had all these ice cubes in his hands and he was crying and I was crying. We were both just sitting there. But I had my arm around him the whole time. And I kind of like, Blocked out, blacked out a little bit because I was so scared. But I remember not leaving his side for a second and feeling so guilty and feeling, feeling like it was all my fault. It was such a shitty babysitter. But I had him there and I had him and he wasn't, he wasn't freaking out, but he was in a lot of pain. My mom rushed into the hospital, and about a couple, like a couple days later, I came to see him and it turned out he had had like third degree burns all over his face, and he was just a little kid and he was covered in these huge bandages and. Uh, and I couldn't even look at him because I, I just felt bad. It's not that he was disgusting or anything. It was just he was my little brother and he was in a lot of pain. Um, but I sat there and I stayed with him and my mom left and I stayed there for a little bit and she came back. But I slept by his side while he got better. And I fell asleep one of those nights and he woke up and uh, he shook me awake. And he was like, Mimi, it doesn't hurt anymore. And I was like, oh, well, yeah, because you're under a lot of medication probably. <laughs> And, uh, he's like, no, it's, it's fine. Uh, no, it doesn't hurt. And well, I, I just want to say, well, thank you, cause uh, you made me feel better. And I was really scared, but I wasn't that scared, cause, cause you, you know, it's fine. I do it all the time. But uh, it, was, it was cool that you were there. And well, I just want to say, thank you. And that was probably the first time my brother just said anything nice to me. And. I realized that we had gone like a good 10 years without really, you know, giving each other that much affection and every, everything changed that day. We started to treat each other a lot nicer and, uh, you know, he didn't light any more fires, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, our relationship definitely improved and we were able to like really hold each other's hand through a lot of really scary stuff. And um, it, it's, it, it, I guess, I guess at the end of the day, I just, I just want to say that like, 
uh, family can be really hard, but I think sometimes if you work through all that shit, you end up having like one of your best friends. And my little brother and I still don't really see eye to eye on a lot of things. Um, he voted for Trump. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't. <laughs> but might as well have. He was selling pot somewhere. But um, but my brother and I, we love each other a lot, and we get along a lot better now. And we'll never see eye to eye, but we'll still love each other through it. And I think that's just kind of a lesson to take in every relationship in your life. So, yeah, just a little bit of advice, I guess. Thank you. Give me a one, everyone. Let her hear one more time. Thank you, thank you for the story, awesome share. Your next performer, I met this man at an open mic at Mr. Tramp's Bar and Grill. Very, very nice dude. He's been a fan of the show. Wanted to come share a fun story for y'all. I hope you're ready for it. Everyone, please get that energy up. Start that clapping now. Everyone, give a warm welcome for Nick Randall. All right, you guys noticed in that introduction I have zero resume. I do not perform. This is my second time on stage. Please be nice to me. Anyway, um, so to set the stage for you, the year was 2010. Barack Obama was still president, so every smile. We had that nice guy in office. It was great. Um, but we were just out of that recession, so the auto workers just got that bailout. Chrysler was in the shithole. And uh, in my hometown of St. Louis, we had a manufacturing plant for Chrysler automobiles. It was just completely shuttered. It was just shut down. I drove past it on the highway all the time, and I was just enticed. I needed to be in this building. You understand? I'm sure you all do. Um, I saw this big open building, and I'm like, hey, Alex, my, my older brother's best friend, who became a good friend of mine, I'm like, Alex, we gotta go. We gotta go. So it's like 1 o'clock in the morning. We park in the corrugated cardboard factory right next to it. We hop over the fence. It was that easy. We were in. We have trespassed. It was great. Um, and so we're walking around the back of the building. We find all this equipment for automobiles. We're like, yeah, we could make a mint, but we didn't. We weren't no nefarious intentions. We just wanted to be there. So we climb the, the ladder. We get on the roof. We're on the smokestacks, having a gay old time. It was fantastic. We climb back down. We find our way inside the building, and it was awesome. Just a big abandoned factory. One of the best places I'd ever been. I find my way onto the assembly line where the cars would be traveling. I'm walking. It was awesome. It was the coolest damn thing. I've. We start to hear some music though. So that kind of set my nerves on edge. I found this little break room that appeared, you know, to be a break room for employees. Very confused. This place was supposed to be, you know, completely shut down. I climbed down off the assembly line through the non-ceiling of the break room. I'm in there. I open up the refrigerator, and I find some milk, right? This milk, ladies and gentlemen, was not yet expired. <laughs> yes, my reaction exactly. Terrified, let's get the fuck out of here. So I climb back, we are running, uh, we make it to our door that we found our way in with, and we hop over the fence, and trespassing succeeded. It was great. We were out of there. It was fantastic. But one taste is never enough, you know? <laughs> so um, Alex's little brother is my best friend, um, and then my older brother is Alex's best friend, and we had bragged about this countless times to them, and they're like, okay, we gotta go. So me and my older brother Chris and uh, my best friend Kevin we break into the same building using the same plan once more. Uh, we drove Alex's car there, and we thought it was a good idea to leave our cell phones in the vehicle. Um, I take the keys, they're in my pocket, and uh, there we go, and, and we, we went off on our grand adventure. Last time, Alex and I had admitted one key thing, which is to get high in this building. So I've got the weed in my pocket, it was great, we're all ready to go, we go up on the roof again, we're smoking weed on the smoke stacks, yes, accomplishment, it was great. 
Um, and so we make our way back down into the building and we are doing much more thorough exploration. We go upstairs, we see the scene of just complete disarray where their offices were, papers strewn about, uh, you know, copy machines clearly like just left in disuse, papers all across the floor. It was magical. We found these awesome tricycles. We were riding around the building. They had baskets in the front. Seriously, it was just the best, guys. And then we hear the noise of utter terror. It's like some fucking golf cart. The golf cart of terror, right? <laughs> and it's headed in a direction. It's got a flashing light on the roof. And we are just like, all right. And it's coming from the direction that we came from. So the only part of the building that we know is now occupied by the enemy. And we are running in the opposite direction. It just it, It's pitch black in there. We didn't really know. We had flashlights. We, we found our way to a door. The door opens to the least forgiving environment that you could find for people trying to flee and hide, which is just the wide open parking lot of this Chrysler plant. <laughs> Absolutely nothing in sight. Um, Kevin is a track star at the time. He ran a lot. He was way ahead of us in no time. My, my brother is a fucking pot smoker and a cigarette smoker, so he's way back here, and I am just a pot smoker, so I found myself in the middle of the pack, right? Um, my brother, he stops, it almost immediately gives up, and is just like, I'm, I'm done, yeah, you got me. Uh, and I, I make my way, I'm running in between two chain link fences, the one on my left is completely transparent, the one on my right has this awesome metal barrier that you could not see through, so I hop the one on my right, I take the weed out of my pocket, I hide it in a spot, it was great, and so now I'm just like breathing as much as I can, and uh, trying to escape, right? I hear that on the other side of the metal wall, my brother gets in the car, two doors shut, I'm like, alright, he's pinched, he's done, fuck Chris, we're out. Um, <laughs> and so I, I hop over the fence, right, and I'm on like, the, it's right next to the highway and there's like this outer road that goes around the whole complex, and I'm like walking on that, I see this bridge, it would take me to the other side of the highway, I'm like, that's my destination. And then I see these lights coming, and it must be a car, and it's likely a cop car. So I'm like, shit, I duck down and I do the coolest thing I've ever done in my life, right? Picture a uh, telephone pole, a light post, right? With like a big concrete base, probably two or three feet wide, two or three feet tall, and I get down. I get down, you couldn't see me, you know? And so the cop car's coming this way, and I do one of these. I do one of these, right? <laughs> It was great. I, it, I, it totally worked. It worked, ladies and gentlemen. And then the cop car, I think they felt something suspicious, right? In their, in their cop instinct, they were like, mm, let's throw this shit in reverse. So they stop, and then they, they, and they back up. And I have to do one of these again. <laughs> yeah. It was fucking dope. And then they went, and then I went, and I was safe. I did it. It was so cool, man. It was so cool. And so I make my way to that bridge. I walk across the bridge. I'm on the other side of the highway. And I'm like, all right, I'm home free. This is fucking cool. There's another bridge to where we parked the car. I was gonna walk, walk across that bridge, done. Home free, right? And I'm a little too cocky at this point, and I see a cop car just like headed my way. And I'm like, shit, I don't know what to do. And he's like, hey, how you doing, man? I'm like, you got me. I gave, I gave up immediately. I started, I'm like, yeah, I, I'm that guy you're looking for. That's me, all right. Um, he's like, uh, oh, yeah, okay, sure. Uh, I get in his cop car, and I swear to God, guys, I thought I was tough, right? I thought I was tough. Um, I'm not. And, and he, he's like, yeah, we already got your brother. And I'm like, he didn't know it was my brother. But I'm like, yeah, that's my brother. And I'm like, mother. And, and Kevin is long gone, right? This is my best friend. I've known him since I was three years old. I knew he got away clean. But somewhere in my head, I'm like, we have his brother's keys. Somehow he's going to know. And I'm like, yeah, that guy's Kevin Ryder. I'm like, mother... And I, I just kicked myself. I just totally ratted. I was just the biggest rat there ever was. And, um, 
And so we we get back, and I meet up with my brother, and they're like, yeah, you guys, we're just going to write you a trespassing ticket. You're not going to jail. I'm like, cool beans. And so we're driving around yelling for Kevin. We're literally, me and my brother in the back of this cop car. Cop's driving us. I'm like, Kevin, Kevin. <laughs> it was fucking great, man. And we did not find him. We did not find him at all. He, he drives us back to the car. We get in the car. We drive away. And Kevin's phone is obviously in the car, so we can't get a hold of him. Turns out Kevin was, like, hiding out under a tree, just, like, and then some possum comes down and, like, is trying to attack him. He makes his way to a gas station fucking miles away, borrows somebody's phone and calls his mom, and his mom comes and picks him up. And so Kevin had got away at this point. Nah, nah, nah. The cops literally show up to Kevin's house uh, a couple days later and are like, Mr. Ryder, we're going to give you a ticket for trespassing. Based on hearsay. They had no evidence. Yeah, and so that was really shitty. I felt really bad for Kevin. Um, but then we have court, which was, this is my favorite courtroom experience. I've had probably 20 or 25. Don't drink and drive, ladies and gentlemen. Just don't do it. Anyway, um, so we're at court, and there's me, my brother Chris, and Kevin waiting in line to talk to the judge. And uh, he sees all three of our tickets, and somehow I'm like the first to speak. And he like, as he, as he asked me what, what I was doing there, he's like, why were you in the Chrysler plant, you know, like, what, why? And so I say to him, you know, Your Honor, to be honest, it, the building, it was just mocking me, you know, just sitting there, all empty. And everybody in the courtroom did what you all did. They laughed, you know, which is nice. Thank you for laughing. But everybody in the court laughed. The judge chuckles, his court clerk lady to the left, she chuckles. And my brother tells me later after the fact, everybody else chuckled. And I felt like a million dollars. I have a career in comedy. I am done. Thank you. Good night. We get our $50 fine, 15 hours community service. My brother, this was actually his birthday. This was his, we were at court on his birthday. I looked up the ticket because I save all of them. I don't know why. But I looked up the ticket today before I came here. It was on May the 10th. That's his birthday. He must have turned, uh, fuck, I don't know, 25-ish? Anyway. So on his birthday, he takes it out on the kindness of his heart because I was the rat. He's like, Kevin, look, I'll pay for your ticket. He paid the 50 bucks. I paid mine. And uh, Chris paid his own 50. And then we are like, Kevin, you know, I know this great place to do community service. It's at the Wildlife Center in Missouri. You're a nature guy. You'll love this shit. And he's like, nah, I'm just not going to do it. <laughs> he just didn't do it. The guy's moving off to Montana in like a couple months, but he's got a warrant in his hometown of St. Louis <laughs> for not completing this. And it's all his best friend's fault. So my shame, my guilt, your pleasure, you know, and that's the end of my story. The moral is always watch out for policemen. <laughs> Nick Randall, everyone, let me hear it one more time. That was awesome. Second time on stage. Who, who here thinks you should keep going, huh? Yeah, that's what's that little positive motivation. That's good. You guys having a good time so far with all the stories and experiences? That were, that's good, man. We're like halfway through. We got a couple more performers for you. Uh, your next performer does, uh, he works, does improv out of the New Movement Theater. Very talented dude. Everyone, please give it up for Christopher Levi. Hey, this is a weird one. So, uh, I guess it starts about 15 years ago, I want to say. Uh, when I was younger, uh, I had a lot of chronic stomach issues uh, that I thought I left in my youth. And then in my early 20s, uh, something new just started happening where probably every six months, like regularly, I would be in this crippling, doubled over pain for about eight hours. And it would go away and I would think nothing of it. Um, the woman I was dating at the time thought she was a doctor, so she's like, oh yeah, you're fine the next day, it's fine. She, she wasn't a doctor, guys. 
Um, but I lived with it uh, for about probably six years. You know, life changes. I move on. I'm with a different woman, and the first time this happens, she's like, "You're going to the hospital," and I don't want to go to the hospital because it's expensive. But I go. And they're like, okay, well, we're going to have an ultrasound done. And it turns out, like, my gallbladder is just entirely crap. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, you're going to need to get that removed. And it probably should have been removed about six years ago. We're not sure how you were dealing with this pain. I'm like, yeah, it's not a big deal. <laughs> I'm like, no, it's, it's a big deal. Like, you were crippled over. And most people have one of those and are like, get this thing out. And you've been doing it twice a year for six years. So I get my gallbladder removed, and does anyone here know what the gallbladder does? No. It stores bile. Uh, basically, bile helps you break down like fat and alcohol, and just it's kind of like the liver's reserve. Um, so when you don't have a gallbladder, um, just your life kind of changes, not in any significant way, but. If you eat the wrong things, you realize it very quickly. And that's really where this story takes place is a couple of years ago, uh, I ate the wrong thing in the middle of the day. I go with my girlfriend to HEB in Buda, Texas, which lovely small community south of Austin. They have wiener dog races, which is hilarious. So <laughs> check that out in April. Um, but we go and my stomach just starts to hurt, but I'm like, nah, this is fine. Um, I'll deal with it. So we're walking through the storm. We're there for about 15 or 20 minutes, and it's just progressively getting worse and worse and worse. But I'm like, no, it's, it's fine. And I don't want to say anything because my girlfriend's both a warrior and also, you know, she's gonna be like, go to the restroom or go get this taken care of. And I, I don't want to be told what to do, basically. Uh, so, we're about to leave the store, and we're going to our mom's house, and I'm like, okay, uh, I'm going to deal with this. So, you know, growing up in Texas, been going to HEB 30 years, more, and there's like five layouts for these stores. So, if you're in an HEB and you're from Texas, you know where the restroom is in HEB. Like, it's just an innate ability of all Texans, I assure <laughs> Uh, so I run to the restroom and go into the first stall, and ladies and gentlemen, it was a photo finish, but I made it. <laughs> and like I said, I was getting to that point where I was in a lot of pain. And going back to what I mentioned before, gall attacks is what the things I was having regularly were called. They're supposed to be a tremendous amount of pain. Uh, the doctor compared it to childbirth, which I thought was a little sexist, but then my mom recently went through one, and she compared it to it, so I was like, okay, I guess that's fair. Um, and this was kind of getting to that point, so I'm, I'm in the restroom, and I'm done, and I'm kind of, I mean, it's not the most relaxing place, but I'm like, relaxing. And, you know, just getting over what just happened to me, and, you know, this moment where I'm not really thinking about much, I noticed something to my left. And what I noticed was a small trash can. Oh, no. Half the room knows what's going on now, so I'm going to bring everyone up to speed. This was a trash can for feminine hygiene products. In my haste, I had ran into the women's restroom. Yeah. So luckily, you know, I, I had good luck at the start of this. I'd ran into an empty women's restroom, unaware that it was a women's restroom. 
So, so far we're good. And this is the only time I, like, I've lived with a woman for about a decade now. I used to work fast food where I had to clean women's restrooms. It's not normally a big deal. This is the first and only time I've experienced this, but there was blood in the trash can. And the only reason I bring that up is because I very clearly remember thinking, oh my god, homeboy must have had a bloody nose. And right there it hits me. I know exactly where I'm at, and the door opens. So I'm no longer alone in the women's restroom. So I'm sitting there trying to decide what to do. She walks by, goes into the next stall. They're kind of big stalls. I can't see her feet, so I'm like, hopefully she can't see my feet because I have size 13 feet. Which I think is a dead giveaway. Like, I don't know if that's a common shoe size for women, but, but I think had she seen my feet, she probably would have freaked out and cops would have been called. So and there I'm like, what am I going to do? So I just wait, and I let her leave. And so I'm thinking, like, I really want to wash my hands. I'm like, okay, this isn't a big deal. I'll run out. The men's room has to be right across, the one I should have gone into. And I'll just, I'll run in there. So I get ready. I sack myself up. I go to run out. I get to the door, open the door. There's, like, a 9 or 10-year-old kid wedged in the men's restroom door, and he's just staring at me. And our eyes meet. And immediately, I'm reading his thoughts. I'm like, what the fuck did I just see? And I'm like, yeah, what the fuck did he just see? And so I run. <laughs> and I didn't get to wash my hands, which was, I think, the grossest I've ever felt in my life. I, uh, I highly suggest washing your hands most of the time. It's just good habit. And uh, especially after what had just happened, it would have been very ideal. Um, but that wasn't the situation I was in. So I go, and I, I get out of there, and I'm terrified, because I'm in this HB. I don't live in that city, but I'm there a couple of times a month, even to this day. And I think I didn't go back for about three months, just terrified that I was going to get arrested for being in the wrong restroom. Um, and at the time, I'm living with one of my best friends. He's my roommate. And I tell him this story, and you know he laughs, obviously. It's a funny story. I'm still way in my head about it and I'm really uncomfortable with it and just barely getting to the point where I'm sharing this in public but uh, you know he's like you're really into skateboarding most of your life I'm like yeah he's like and what was your favorite skateboarding team I'm like girl like they're the best you know Erica Stone Guy Mariano like none of you know what I'm talking about uh, but they're the best look them up if you love 90s skateboarding which none of you do they're the best team but their logo is the, the generic girls restroom sign and I have these everywhere. Uh, in my youth, I would steal them. I literally screwed one off of the wall at the Union Underground in the early 2000s in the plain sight of a bunch of people. I don't know how I got away with this, but I still have it to this day. It's huge and really ornate, and it's awesome. And I'll just hang it on walls whenever I move. And so he's like, yeah, you just saw that and figured it was your bathroom. <laughs> so yeah, that's the time I, I went into the wrong restroom, guys. I wouldn't recommend it. Good stuff, everyone. Christopher Levi, one more time. Let me hear it.
Right in here. All right, we got we've got two performers left for you. Um, your next performer, you can see, you probably have seen him drumming all about town. He plays in a couple different bands: uh, Little Latried, Uni, uh, Bog Bodies, and the Sugar Queens. Everyone, hey, he's here now to tell us a story. Everyone, give it up for Ray Flint. Hey guys, I'm Ray Flint. I'm going to tell you a story about this guy Bill that I worked with. Is that, uh, is that loud enough? Can everyone hear me? I feel like very loud. Um, I worked at a wood shop for about two and a half years. And before the wood shop, I worked at a small green building supply place. And I never did any woodworking there. None. But I lied. And I said I did a lot. So I got a job at a wood shop. Very, very freaked out by table saws before I got there. So I might have made the wrong career choice at that point in my life because I was very scared of sharp things, as everyone should be. But so my first day at this job, I meet this guy named Bill. Bill is what Yosemite Sam would look like if he let himself go. <laughs> Bill looked like someone dipped their penis in vinegar and let it just sit there for a very long time. <laughs> Bill looked like scribbled paper was left out in the rain. He was very, very, very badly kept. And he was also a very sour man. He didn't like anyone. Bill told me one time that he moved out of Texas because he was tired of seeing his own kids. I'm serious. And he said it like it was funny. It's not. It was just sad. And so, so my first day on the job, Bill is training me. Bill is my boss. I don't know anything about anything. Literally, I have seen a joiner one time because I watched a video on YouTube with Nick Offerman. I was like, oh, I got it. Well, I didn't, uh, because Bill, Bill goes and shows me this joiner. And the first thing that happens is he's like, I want to show you how to use this. And a joiner, I don't know if you guys are familiar with a joiner, but a joiner is basically, it's a table with a, with a cylindrical saw on the bottom of it. And so you push a piece of wood over the top, and there's a saw that's constantly cutting the wood on the table face, right? It's one of the most dangerous tools in a wood shop because there's only this, this guard that is, is pushed away. But once it's pushed away, then it's only the wood and your fingers going over this blade. So he's showing me this table, and he's pushing this piece of wood over the top of it. And He's like, all right, this is how you do it. And then, and then this noise stops, like the noise of the machine stops. He's like, what the hell? What the hell is going on? He's flipping things around. I don't know what's happening. I'm just standing there like, oh, I'm glad this is happening because I'm scared of that. <laughs> and he's flipping things around. He doesn't, he doesn't know what's happening. And so he just he pulls the arm back that's supposed to stop you from doing what he's about to do. And he puts his fingers directly into the machine and flips the blade like that. It kicks on right away and it cuts off the tops of his fingers. First day of my job. 
That's how I really met Bill. Because three hours later, he was back at work. <laughs> he was back at work, and he and they put his arm in a sling, and it had, I don't know why they did that, but I feel like it was because they are like, you're kind of like a dog, so we need to put a cone over you, which was, stop moving this thing around. So he walked in, he had a, his arm in a sling, and, and Bill, Bill was a short dude, and he walked like he was constantly carrying something. And so he, he came back in like that, and was like, what's going on, what's happening? What's that Ray boy doing? And shit like that. He was just like, still ornery, horrible. Fingers covered in bandages with blood on them. His, he lost this part of his finger right there. That, that, that first bone. You guys want to feel your finger and feel what that would be like if you, that was chewed up in a machine? Shoot, I'm like, yeah, fuck it. No big deal to him. Sew it up, I'm going back to the wood shop. And so, pretty much everything after that, he hated me. I felt like I was his bad luck charm. Everything that happened Everything that happened that was bad has, to him happened when I was there. He one time shot, he was holding a piece of wood and he was clamping it down with his fingers because he's an idiot and you should use an actual clamp. He was like, I got it. And so he clamped it down with his fingers and he shot a, a staple through it and he's like, ah, damn it. <laughs> it just constantly, like, just, I always watched him fuck up his fingers. That's all I did. I was just standing back. I'm like, oh, there, there goes another one. It was bad. And so I didn't like this guy. And like uh, one time he gave me a project of putting back together this antique cabinet. And I, I used the wrong screws. God forbid I used the wrong screws. And he got so angry. He chewed me out in front of everyone. Everyone in the wood shop chewed me out so hard. I have never been more mortified. I had my uh, headphones on, and I just acted like I couldn't hear what he was saying. I was just was standing there. I could hear everything he was saying, and everyone was looking at me, and I just acted like I was oblivious. I was so heartbroken. Because oddly enough, I cared what that guy thought, because he was one of the toughest dudes I've ever seen in my entire life. But at the same time, I hated him with a passion, and I would go home and I would talk to my family like, Bill is a son of a bitch, and I can't wait to watch him die. I'd say shit like that, and my mom would be like, yeah, fuck him, that stupid son of a bitch, cuts off his fingers, he should be fired. I'm like, I agree, mom, you're very smart, thank you for the food and the house. I'll pay you back soon. And so, Bill was a very sick man. I didn't know this. But Bill had skin cancer the entire time I knew him. And he was something he was battling. That's why he looked the way he looked. And um, he also had a lot of other things going on with him. Um, he was someone who abused drugs for a very, very long time. He was someone who thought it was fun to shoot guns over a golf course. He liked to go on golf courses. When he lived in Hawaii, he would go on a golf course and he would shoot his guns into the woods. Because Bill was fucking crazy and intense. So, 
I'm at work one day, and uh, someone comes into the finishing booth. I, I, I worked my way up off the floor. I somehow overcame all my fears, and I worked way, way, my way off the floor where I wasn't just risking my fingers. Now I was risking my lungs by spraying lacquer every day on a cabinet. Someone came into the booth and was like, Bill's dead. I was like, what? Bill's dead? What the f what? Who built a giant joiner? What happened? Did he jump into it face first? And they're like, no, seriously, he's dead. He had a heart attack while his son was outside working on his car. And his son found him, and now he is very, very dead. It's like, oh. Fuck. Okay, well. We all knew that. I remember Bill specifically. Every time I said, Bill, how you doing? He would say, another day above the dirt. It's a good day. It's like, oh, that's fucking dark. All right, Bill, thank you. <laughs> good morning. And so Bill's dead. And we have a wake at the shop. So everyone's, everyone's there. And I hate Bill. Everyone hates Bill. Everyone hates Bill. Um, and this guy that was friends with Bill, the, the guy that, that hired Bill, um, was started telling stories about Bill. And I found out that he was someone completely different than I thought he was. Bill had this, uh, Bill, Bill always wore a uh, Harley Davidson shirt tucked into his pants, pleated, weird jeans. I don't even know where the hell he got them, but they're still there. He always showed up looking exactly the same. But there was one truth always is there was this weird black, like, looked like I always thought it was a tire or something. Like, he drew, like, tire treads. Like, he had a tattoo of tire treads on his arm. But he always had the, those tattoos sneaking out. You know, a little bit on the back of his neck. I never knew what they were. I was too scared to ask him. And so this guy, Gabe, who worked with him, got him hired, was telling us these stories. And so remember how I said, like, he moved out of Texas to get away from his kids? He moved to Hawaii? So he moves to Hawaii, and he's living right there on the ocean. It's perfect. He loves it. And he loves scuba diving. He finds that out. Once he escapes his kids, he finds himself. He loves scuba diving. Bill, the dude who was, building, who was rebuilding a 1952 Chevy and also had a fucking Glock under his seat. Every time he went anywhere, he was like, oh, I've got to go to Whataburger, got to get my gun, put it under my seat. That guy loves scuba diving, which I think is kind of awesome. And so he loves scuba diving. He would always dive off of his dock early in the morning and go scuba diving. That's how he like escaped Texas, doing that, going underwater. And so he kept doing that and doing that. And then one day, an octopus came up to him. This little octopus came up to him and let him touch it, and they became friends very quickly. It got to the point where he would go out every morning and meet up with this octopus. <laughs> this octopus would meet him for breakfast. They would hang out. Every, it was a ritual. This octopus fucking loved Bill to the point where he would work his way underneath 
his little wetsuit and get right on Bill's skin and wrap himself around Bill. Bill loved this octopus with all of his heart, more than his kids. <laughs> he got away, he found his one true love under the water. I mean, he really did. And so Bill is having the time of his life. He's, at this point, he's clean. He's, he's no longer shooting guns on golf courses. He's no longer doing heroin. He's no longer doing coke. He only now smokes the occasional joint. But really, the thing that keeps him going is this octopus. And so one day, he's down there, and it's not there. The next day, it's not there. The next day, it's not there. You guys see where this is going. He never shows up again for a good two months. And he realizes, oh, he's never come back. Well, he doesn't know what sex it is. I don't know. Maybe it did. Um, but it's never come back. So Bill is heartbroken. And so what Bill does, which is a very Bill thing, Bill takes all the scuba gear. He puts it in one of those fucking net bags. He throws it off the deck where he used to dive into the ocean to meet his octopus friend. Gets all this shit that he cares about. Flies back to Texas and gets a job at a wood shop. Next day, you know, he's in Austin. He calls up his friend who's a like a tattoo artist. He says, I have an idea for a tattoo. I want to get an octopus. It wraps around my back and all around my arms and all around my head. I want that. So he spends about nine months getting that tattooed on his body. And it was a testament to a spirit of, of uh of someone who is so nasty and so horrible to everyone in his family, where he would abandon them because he was tired of looking at them. But he found this creature in happenstance that he loved so much. He spent so much money and time to get it tattooed on his back and abandoned an entire life because of that creature. And I didn't know about this until his wake. I didn't know. Who would ever guess a dude like that would care about an animal at all? You would assume that he would shoot at octopuses for fun. But he didn't. He really, really had this weird aspect about him. And so he really, he really did find himself, you know, um, being almost like an underwater prince. Bill was an underwater prince. He should have never been on land. Should have always been under the water because fuck, if he was, he would at least died with his one true love, the random ass octopus he met in Hawaii. <laughs> anyway, I'm Ray. Thanks, guys. Keep it going for Ray, everybody. Ray Flint.
What a great show. We only got one performer left. How's everyone feeling, huh? Good, good. Uh, before I bring her up here, just like to remind everyone, if you like this episode and you want to see what other stories were like, we record it as a podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever podcast app you have. I only know of two of them, but my friends tell me there's more apps than just two. Um, find it on iTunes. Um, Body Tape International produces this for us. If you like uh, this show, check them out. They have uh, a bunch of other podcasts online um, hosted by other comedians here in Austin. So Body Tape International. And there's also, uh, also, how much did you pay to have a fun time with us? Zero dollars. Yeah. Some people are like, was I supposed to pay to get here? <laughs> we have a little donation bucket out there by our sign. Just helps keep the podcast running and things going smoothly. So announcements done. Are you guys ready for your final performer of the night? Woo! Woo-hoo! She's a lovely comedian. I met her here at Genuine Joe's Coffee House writing and hanging out. I love her a lot. Everyone, please give a warm welcome for Jill Friedman. Hi, everybody. Uh, I really like these lights. I like these lights because they set the tone because my story, purple-green, my story is about Judaism, Catholicism, and New Orleans. And it's not anywhere near as serious as that sounds. Um, so my family, uh, I, was, I was brought up Jewish. Uh, my mother was not Jewish. She never converted, but very much leaned into it. Um, I went to Hebrew school, I had a bar mitzvah, my brother had a bar mitzvah. Um, you know, everybody, it was, it was, you know, 11 months out of the year, it was yay Jews, and then December was Christmas. Uh, and Christmas was a really big deal in my, in my, in my house. Uh, my mom had just a, an arsenal of decorations. The house was just, you know, tinseled and wreathed and little wooden elved to the, to the nines. It was great. Um, <clears throat> which is where the story goes, um, to a Jewish holiday. Um, this is a story that starts with the best phone call I ever received. It's from my mother. Jill Passover's canceled, your stupid brother's in jail. <laughs> How's that for 10 a.m. on a Tuesday? Um, so the story behind this is my brother had decided to move to New Orleans. Uh, he had built a bit of a business and a, and a bit of a life there, sort of remotely going down and visiting a friend over a number of years, and then decided to pack it into New York and go to New Orleans. So my family was not thrilled about this. Uh, we're pretty close-knit, and my, I know my parents had visions of us staying in New York forever. Clearly that didn't happen. Um, <laughs> so my brother decided to move and decided that because of the way his schedule played out, he was going to leave the morning of the first, the morning of Erev Passover. And in Judaism, you don't celebrate on the day, you celebrate the night before. That's what Erev means, night before. And my brother was leaving on Erev Passover and my mother wasn't pleased about this. She was like, you couldn't wait one more day. And he says, no, I've got to go. The truck's coming to the apartment tomorrow. I've got to be there. Well, obviously, my brother was not there. Um, so what had happened was this. He had gotten to the point in his packing where you're pulling out drawers and you're dumping them into bags and you're not paying attention what's in what drawer is going into what bag. 
and he completely did not notice the set of brass knuckles that ended up in his backpack that he tried to take through security at a New York City airport. Oh, no. Uh, my brother is six foot two with very broad shoulders and was suddenly surrounded by four dudes bigger than he was. It was a very special moment in his life. Um, our father had to go get him. Uh, my brother spent Passover authentically in captivity. Um, <laughs> let my dumb son go, he had to, my father had to say. Um, but it all worked out. Um, he paid a fine or something. Uh, moved to New Orleans. He's been there for 10 years now. He met a wonderful woman. They got married. They have a beautiful baby. My niece, Isabella. And Isabella is being raised Catholic because my sister-in-law is Catholic. She's a native New Orleanian. So my niece is being raised as a native New Orleanian and Catholic. So my sister-in-law organized a brunch for her christening. And my father came down. I drove down. Um, It was a big, wonderful thing. And my sister-in-law had koozies made for the christening because New Orleans. And (laughs) this led to a very interesting conversation with our father because he had not really encountered a koozie in his entire life. And so we had to explain what a koozie was because in the South, it's it's a little more than just, oh, it keeps my hand dry and my beverage cold. There's like a whole culture where like every bar has them, you know, they're a promotional item. It's, it's an important sort of cultural tchotchke, if you will. Um, and so he said to our dad, well, koozies are like yarmulkes. <laughs> koozies are like yarmulkes. Why? Well, in every southern household, there is a bowl or, bus- or bucket or what have you of koozies. In every Jewish household, there is a drawer full of yarmulkes. And in both cases, you have a koozie and or a yarmulke from Dave and Debbie's wedding. You don't know who the fuck Dave and Debbie are. (laughs) You weren't at that wedding. But somehow, this item has found its way into your home. And that is my wonderful story. Thank you so much, everybody. (laughs) Gotcha. Jill Freeman, everybody, keep it going for Jill! And that is all the performers I've needed. Thank you guys so much for coming out. Did you have fun? Yeah. Hey, come back and see us next month. Thank you guys so much for coming. I'm Joey Zimmerman. Have a good night. Bye-bye! International. <laughs>